0: Have you ever fantasized about taking revenge on someone who wronged you? Or someone who wronged someone close to you? Have you ever thought about inflicting awful pain or fatal wounds on people that just, you know, deserve it, but whom the justice system is not going to dish out that justice to? I suppose these are things, hopefully, you would never actually carry out. These are hopefully just fantasies in your head, and these fantasies don't just play out in our heads. They sometimes play out in fiction too. And I think that's part of what is going on in the story that I'll be talking about today on the show, The Adventures of Ma Su Jun. My guest for the episode is going to be the translator of this book, Mr. Paul Bevan of Oxford University no less. He'll be coming on after the news segment, the Tritrific News, the translated Chinese fiction news. Actually, I'm telling a little bit of a lie. There's something I'm going to do first. We'll do it very quickly. I'll just ask you to review the show. So if you can leave me, or leave this podcast rather, a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Google, Google Podcasts or anywhere that you can leave a review, that'd be wonderful. It would just be a great way to say thanks if you're a big fan of the show. It will help the show reach more people. That's that's the point. That's uh That's what I'm seeking to do, really. I'm not trying to profit. I guess I'm just trying to become famous. That's my selfish... Selfish agenda here. Become famous on the internet and reach more listeners. So, yeah, um, self-indulgent uh, begging aside, we'll go on to the Trochu Fig News, the translated Chinese fiction news. So, uh, four items today. The first one is something you can listen to. It's another podcast. It is a podcast episode from a show called The Arts of Travel. And it's, uh, I think, an, yeah, an interview with a sinologist, Sabina Knight, Dr. Sabina Knight. Uh, And Sabina will be talking in this podcast about China's literature. It's a part one. I don't know if there's going to be future installments, but in this part one, she's talking about uh, Taoism, Confucianism and anti-war poetry from Chinese literature. Sounds pretty cool. Uh, Don't forget as well, you can follow Sabina on Twitter. She's quite active there. It's uh, twitter.com. Why am I saying that? I I should just say her handle, which would be, which would be at Sabina Knight 1. So I'm sure you can find her. Okay, next news item, it's something you can read. It's an interview between two individuals who came on the show together, Shenyang and Nikki Harmon, so an author and her translator. Um, so I guess they're just talking about the subject matter of the book, which we did actually cover on the show, more than one child. They're talking about being born illegal, what it was like growing up as an excess birth daughter. So just the author and the translator speaking to each other. These two are pals which I think often makes for the best interviews, a friendly relationship between the interrogator and the interrogatee. That's up on pen, uh, yeah, the pen uh, translation, pen literature award translations blog, pentransmissions.com. But of course, the, the link will be in the show notes. Now, third news item, this is a story um, from a book that was covered on the show, which you can now read online for free. It's The Old Cicada by tanshua that's up on a webpage for you to read. It's the wor- Words Without Borders campus website, again, a link will be in the show notes. I don't know if I've got anything particularly wise to say here, just that it is a interesting tanshua story. It's um, on one hand, less sort of disorienting, disorienting. I always struggle with that word, disorienting. It's not disorientating, isn't it? It's just disorienting. Anyway, it's um, it's less weird and confusing than many of her stories, but there is like a subtle strangeness to it, uh, working out exactly what it, what it might mean or what it is what is what it is trying to communicate, rather than what it means. If you see what I mean, 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 mean. Okay, fourth news item. This is uh, I picked this one because of uh, my hardcore Scottish bias. Basically, it's an event. It's uh, not an online event; it's in person, and you've got to be in like Perth or Kinross to to attend this in in like rural Scotland. So pretty much none of you are going to be able to make it, I think, unless anyone's listening from like Dundee or St Andrews. It's a former guest of the show; he's going to be doing um, a reading of translations from ancient China. So you may have guessed that's Brian Holton. The event's called "Hard Roads and Cold Hurst Winds." I'll just read the little event bio just so you can um, get a picture of this event that you know, you're know probably not going to be able to make it to. Hard Roads and Cold Hairswinds is a collection of Scots translations of poetry by Li Bai and Du Fu, two of the most renowned poets of ancient China. By bringing two of the world's great poets from the oldest continuous literary tradition in the world into the library of Scots writing, Holton creates a text as valuable in its own way to the literary tradition as Lorimer's wonderful New Testament in Scots. Walton's skillfully supple verse is composed in a literary Scots inflected by his native dialect, giving rise to a natural phrasing that draws on his intimate knowledge of the border ballads. He's from the Scottish borders, by the way. Complemented by a collaboration with Edinburgh-based calligrapher Chir Zhang, these finely wrought translations create a strikingly be- beautiful book, inclusive of introductory essays on the poets, notes on the text, and a reflective postscript. And then the second paragraph is just a bio of. Uh, Brian's, so I'll, I'll skip that part. So you're, if you are actually um, in, in Scotland somewhere in proximity of Creaf, you can uh, book this thing for £6 on Eventbrite. you got to show up on the 23rd of April on an, uh, which is a Saturday 5 to 6 p.m. and it's a it's at Inner uh, inner Peffrey Library. Inner Peffrey. It's a good Place name, isn't it? In our periphery library. So, yep, uh, that's the that is of course, (laughs) that's definitely the uh, the uh, news item I should have spent the most time on. Of course, that makes the most sense. Um, Nonsensical, questionable decisions aside, let's go on to a book. uh, Yeah, let's go on to a discussion about a book where the main character does not question her own decisions at all. She just gets the hell on with it like I should be doing. Uh, That book is The Adventures of Ma Soozhen and I'll be talking to Paul Bevan, its translator, in like two seconds when the interview begins. So goodbye from introduction Angus and interview Angus will be saying hello to you in like a second. Okay, so on the show we have Paul
1: Bevan. Very exciting to have you here. Paul, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. And thank you for inviting me to speak on your podcast. Yeah, it's
0: great to have you. Your 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 book and yourself were recommended to me by Helen Wong, who's she's sort of an invisible presence on the show. She's never been on herself, uh, but I'm sure she's she's been mentioned and she's she's been friend she's a friend to lots of past guests or or contact to lots of past guests so she's hmm. making herself felt again but enough about Helen uh, more about you Paul um can you tell us a bit about yourself and what you
1: do well at the moment I am departmental lecturer in modern chinese uh, in what in modern chinese literature and culture at the university of oxford and so I mean so at the moment I'm teaching and researching but uh, before that And I've been teaching in Oxford form since 2013, on and off, uh, not, not as a full-time job. Uh, in 2018 to 20, I would, had a different sort of job, which was in a museum, as, uh, as Christensen Fellow in Chinese Painting at the Ashmolean Museum. Oh, yeah. And so that sort of shows uh, my interests are rich, really literature and art and where the two meet. And so you can see that in the books that I write. They're very much on both art and literature. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and we'll get into it later, but there's a bit of a multimedia angle to the book we're going to be talking about today, which is uh, The Adventures of Ma Sujen. just wanted to mention um, the Ashmolean. I, I visited that just the once, and I think I knew it was going to have bits and bobs from all over the world, but there was a very cool Chinese I don't know if you call it an exhibit, but some of the items Mm -hmm. on display, you know, obviously my, my being who I am, I'm looking, looking like a, a hawk for absolutely anything Chinese or even East Asian. And the two things I remember that were there were uh, one was some sort of modern style i really i don't remember the artist but like mm. quite modern style portraits of various figures i think one of them was lu shun so that gives us an idea of the, the window of time there but the other was um uh, artist from Tranzhou, i think or at least from fujian province where Tranzhou is who makes yeah. Art using like explosions like he marks uh-huh. Gunpa I forgot his name but that was an uncanny moment. I'm just this is I'm really just talking to listeners here Paul. I apologize if this means nothing to you but he I'd seen one of his works before in Chuanzhou in the Fujian Taiwan Friendship Museum a very PRC style museum uh, but it was amazing. Um, there's this huge tree he painted using like controlled explosions and then it was such a pleasure to uh, go wandering into the Ashmolean and seeing that mainland Chinese artist being featured there. So yeah, um, just Ashmolean and Chinese stuff. I, I I can't I can't say enough. Oh, I have said enough. So I'll let you talk.
1: <laughs> well, I mean the th- yes. I mean it's got an excellent modern Chinese collection, and that's what it's famous for: is the modern Chinese painting collection in particular. Mm. But of course, there are the um, galleries there, uh, the Chinese galleries that don't change as much, and and they are also very important as far as museums in this country go from the point of view of China. Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah. The, the modern aspect, I guess, is what I enjoyed because although this podcast host has a tagline, all eras, all genres, all ideologies, I can definitely admit I have some personal sort of favorites and um, I don't really lean towards the classical stuff. Uh, right. I don't hate it. Not at all, but definitely the modern, the modern world is uh, is what I find interesting in Chinese lit. Yeah. Although I guess that is not a narrow term in itself, because we're looking at something that definitely feels very modern in some ways, but it's like the modernist era, not the the postmodern world, I guess. Yeah, I've kept teasing what the book is about, and although I'm very tempted to ask you right off what on earth
1: is it about, first I'll ask you, what's your relationship to the text in question here? OK, well, I mean, that actually goes back to 2017. And I was doing a class um, at SOAS, School of Oriental African Studies in London. And I was actually standing in for Frances Wood. And Frances Wood had chosen some books. It was a, it's a, a class on the book in China. Uh, so she'd chosen some books. And along with those books, uh, which were all very interesting in themselves, there were also some um, Nianhua. Um, prints and some popular prints as well and one of those prints had a figure on it called Ma Yongzhen. Now Ma Yongzhen I had no idea who he was but it was so so interesting to see this figure he was uh, lifting dumbbells and he had nunchucks on the ground and so he was some sort of martial artist so I I went and looked into who he was and and that's when I found in fact uh, through looking him up, I found this book. Um, and it was, And this book, I, I just started reading it. And I thought, hang on, this is a, a wonderful book. I can't stop turning the pages. Uh, I need to uh, do something about this. So I read it several times and found it, you know, absolutely fascinating every time I read it. And that, yes. So one, once I finished reading it, I thought, yeah, I think I, I, it would be nice to translate it. And so when my job finished at the Ashmolean, it was just at the time that the uh, lockdown was beginning. I only had three weeks to go when the lockdown started. That's when I began translating it. And it took me a year to translate it and to write the essay, which is also in the book. Uh, and and then it took just a, a little while longer to actually get it published.
0: Right. So this, actually, I'm curious about something here uh, because my my Yongzhen, He's not our main character in this book. Our main character, as the title maybe suggests, is Ma Sujen and their siblings. And I guess to boil it to, down to a nutshell, Ma Yongjen is a gangster, or he's sort of involved in the underworld in, uh, in old Shanghai. And in this book, he's he's been killed. He's been murdered by some other gangsters. And Ma Sujen, his sister, ventures from her home or their, their family home in Shandong to go get vengeance. And in your your sort of supplementary, I've I've, I've trouble remembering what was in the intro and what was in the essay afterwards. But in in, in either case, you you explained in the paratext that Ma Yongjun has was a real well number one, he was a real guy in history. And number two, there's quite a lot of fiction uh, in in written form, but also like plays and movies about him. And Ma Su appears in some of that. That those other outputs as well. so I'm just curious if you know have any other uh, books or stories involving these characters ever been translated to English or if you know uh, other languages or is this a,
1: a first? I think as as far as books go, I think it's almost certainly a first. Um, there are films and these films some of the films um, the later films from the 70s and the 80s are quite well known as martial arts films. Because as you rightly say, Ma Yongzhen was a gangster, a martial artist, a performing strongman in particular. And he died in 1879. The thing about him is you can you can find um, newspaper articles on his death because he was murdered quite, quite horribly. Mm. Um, All the details are there for several days in the uh, Shanghai newspapers, in Shenbao, the uh, daily paper in, in Shanghai. And his sister, Ma Suzhen, is not a real person. She was she was made up. Um, although prior to uh, the the book being published in in nineteen twenty three, uh, she was reported in some um, magazines etc etc as as his as his wife. And I don't know if he had a wife or not. It's very actually very difficult to find out the, the uh, real history of Ma Yongjun that is not uh, just what's written in the newspaper. But uh, many things followed on from that. Uh, the 1923 book, there was a film in 1927 by the ming Company, uh, which is, was a very, very popular film at the time. Um, and, and then it went from there. But there were other books about Ma Yongjun at the time. I've, never, I've, no, I've not been able to track down any of these. The point about this sort of literature it was popular literature that wasn't necessarily hasn't necessarily survived in in libraries.
0: yeah um you mentioned there that you hadn't uh, heard of heard of the guy this myong Jin before until you picked up the book and then you learned he's this popular figure that's spawned this whole uh, extended universe no it's not an extended universe I'm abusing the term there but like this whole extended uh, library of other media so I'm just wondering did you, did you have the sort of um, funny situation where you you learn about this thing and you realize you're sort of late to the party and then other people you're in contact with maybe quite likely Chinese colleagues or friends um, have known about this figure like all their lives. Have you, did you did you find
1: that? That's absolutely the case. I mean I, I, I must say you know after I found out about him, how did I find out obviously on the internet to start with? And when you go onto the internet and you put in Ma Yong Jun and Ma soo Jun as well, uh, you will find several films, which are very, as I said, famous martial arts films. And you know, I started watching. So I've watched the films, I've watched there are two uh, drama series, you know, lengthy drama series, which they both appear in. And so I, I got to know them from that. But as you're quite right to say that, you know, he's a sort of almost, as I say in my introdu- introduction to the book, Almost a household name in in China, and even there is a Yeah, I've even seen a children's book about it.
0: <laughs> Interesting. So, I'm going to go to that question that I was tempted to earlier about the plot. So, I I guess I already gave a really basic version. Um, do you want to expand at all on what I described?
1: Yeah, I mean, so Ma Su Jun is at home and she falls asleep and she dreams of her brother. And in the brother, he uh, in the uh, dream, the brother comes and says, I, you know, I am I have been murdered. You must come and re- take revenge. And so uh, after much toing and fro and going to uh, soothsayers and discussing with her relatives, she does. She decides she must go to Shanghai. And so the first half of the book is her travels to to Shanghai. Um, it when she, at which time she encounters all all sorts of people who are are either downtrodden or mistreated by, particularly by wealthy people. And so she uh, takes revenge for them as well. Uh, But what's interesting about the book, I think, is the fact that the the two halves are completely different. So this, the first half is much more like, uh, has some um, elements of martial arts and a martial arts novel. But it is not really a martial arts novel um when she halfway through the book exactly halfway the book through the book she then arrives in shanghai uh and the whole tone of it changes so it becomes more like the sort of urban novel that you would have found by by, uh, by writers such as uh Zhang Henshui and Bao Tianxiao. so people who wrote in the genre of the so-called i don't like the term but i, I use it here the Mandarin Ducks and Butterflies literature, popular literature of the time. So the second half is very, very different. And I have to say, the second half is much more exciting than the first half. It gets a long time. It takes a long time for the story to get going. And it really kicks off in the second half.
0: When it started off, like she's, it almost felt like I was reading uh, something out of Hero, A Thousand Faces, like this sort of point for point mythical journey she's called to adventure she has to go on little side quests on the way to help people and it's all leading somewhere further down the line so I guess on one hand that made the first half a bit disjointed because it felt like little mini episodes whereas the second half it's it's much more of a conventional type plot but compounding on that those opening episodes just weren't as interesting pieces of drama I didn't think compared with when it gets Much more personal, and I I absolutely agree. And there's more, there's more subterfuge, and there's the humor. There's more humor, I think, in the second half as well, and the characters are more vibrant. So it's not just the plot that gets more interesting; it's the way it's handled. I think.
1: Absolutely right. And why is that? Because they're written by different people. The first half is written by someone completely different from the second half. Or one imagines they were friends, but um, I'm, I'm not really quite sure. I think we'll come to that a bit later, won't we?
0: Yeah, it's, it's funny. I was listening to a podcast a few days ago. Um, it was an interview with the horror writer, Ramsey Campbell, who was talking about well, lots of different things. But he uh, talked about his feelings of inadequacy at times when he had to sort of um, play writing games with the writers. There's some show he was on in the 90s where he was gathered with a load of other, I think, UK and American horror writers. And they had to collaborate and write a story. And he didn't really know what he was doing, despite being one of the big names in the genre. He just sort of, he said, if anyone watches the show and they pay attention to him, they'll see him not, not contributing very much and fumbling. And then he, he described another time when he was paired up with an author called Poppy Z. Bright, another big name. And I think she, they were supposed to write a book together. She wrote the first chapter or something, and he just didn't know how to follow it up at all. Um. So yeah, it's, yes. it's just a funny coincidence there that. dual collaborative novels. I guess we don't hear about them much, but they are a feature in the literary landscape and they're quite a weird feature, I think.
1: In this case, it certainly is unusual because uh, they are completely different, the first and the second half. But in fact, you know, the book itself, the whole book is the second volume of a much longer story. The first volume is uh, the story of Ma Yongjun himself. And that again was written by the same two writers. Zhu Daogong and uh, Qi Fan And it's very, very difficult to work out who did what and why. And so that's why, uh, you know, I, I have said that the book is attributed to Qi Fanyo and Zhu Gong rather than uh, it is by them. Because, uh, for example, Zhu Gong at the end, he says, oh, this second half was, uh, the first half was written by Qi Fan And the second half of the, uh, the book was written by Zhu Gong. So he, and he says, I, you know, my, my half is not as, as good as Chi Fan Yeo's and, you know, this sort of thing. And, well, I would dispute that because I think his half is much, much more interesting, as we've discussed. But that's exactly the same as happens, uh, the same sort of thing happens in the first volume to do with the story of Ma Yongjun. And it has to be said that the, that story of Ma Yongjun is nowhere near as interesting as the uh, story of Ma Su And that's why I've translated this uh, second volume rather than both of them.
0: You read my mind there, and that's exactly what I was going to ask. Would you um, would you ever want to go back and translate that first one and try and get it published? or do you think it's not not really worth
1: it for readers? It's a possibility. It is uh, a possibility, but it's just not as interesting. It's just um, it, it shows very much about how you know his prowess as a, a, a great martial artist and uh, strongman, which is interesting in itself, I have to say. And I have written an, a, uh, a, an essay on um, Ma Yongzhen, which will be published maybe in a couple of years. It takes so long to publish some of these things. Mm-hmm. And so I do find it interesting, but I just don't think that book is going to uh, appeal to it as wide an o- audience as this one probably should. Okay. So in the next set of questions, we're going
0: to make it blindingly apparent why this book is so interesting. But before we... Go into that. I'll just ask you really directly. Um, could you sum up like what makes the thing interesting?
1: I think what makes this book particularly interesting is the fact that it has Ma Sujun as the as the heroine or hero, or however we want to term her, um, as opposed to focusing on her, her on her brother um, and what happens to her in a period which is admittedly not very clear when when it actually takes place, but a period when the Women's rights were being recognized a little bit more in the Republican period and, um, and women had more freedom. Uh, here she is, a, a woman, Admits she has to disguise herself as a man, but she goes, she travels across the country from Shandong to Shanghai and uh, performs all sorts of uh, feats of uh, bravery. So mm-hmm. uh, I think that's what makes it in, particularly interesting.
0: Totally. Yes. Gosh, what was I going to say? I know what i was going to say i was going to say you've led me perfectly into my next question uh which is about where are we and when are we so the, the where is at first you'd think kind of simple um we start off at somewhere in shandong we end up in shanghai although the places in between um are i in my the question i got written down on the page i used the word liminal like it they're just sort of random little places again it reminded me of some like a uh, mythic story where someone's on the path nothing is on the path except like say an individual house in the woods or something it had almost like that fairy tale vibe to me but the the real ambiguous point like you said is when because like like you were saying earlier the real Ma Yongzhen was I guess a guy of the late Qing but I used the words old Shanghai to describe Shanghai hmm. and that was very purposeful choice I was thinking of the Shanghai that uh, people like Paul French uh, dedicate their whole careers to basically Um, the city of devils like sort of a jazz crime uh, eastern and western cultural um, cross-pollination that's the word I'm looking Mm. for an exciting and dangerous and very culturally rich and unique place to be and it did feel like that's kind of what we're seeing in the book but also it's not it it could quite as easily I think pass for the for the late Qing and you even in I believe in your I forget again I I forget if it's your intro or your essay at the end but you point to sort of contradictory evidence that could that basically mean it's an impossible story because it seems to be happening in both times. Uh, Could you go into that a bit more?
1: Yeah so the story should be happening after his death, which is 1879. So immediately after his death, so it could be as late as 1880. But um, but the strange thing about it is that there are incidents that happen. For example, close to the beginning, they talk about the um, funeral of a, a a very wealthy man that took place, and how uh, how. Fabulous! It was to see so many people on the streets, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But in fact, that funeral didn't take place until much later. I, th- I can't remember quite what the date is, but I think it might be 1917. But then the book itself was written in uh, 1923, and since that time, you know, offer there are there are various ideas of, of of how it should be portrayed. So you get it sometimes set in the Qing Dynasty, sometimes set in the Republican period. So after 1911. Um, and so it's a little bit of a mess from that point of view. But in this case, you know, I mean, it is very much a hodgepodge. There are there is a flavour of the nineteenth century, but there are also things which couldn't possibly happen. For example, when she goes to the, um, she goes and hears some uh, Chinese opera, some Peking opera, and uh, they have scenery, for example, and they have the the most modern ways of uh, um, performing the uh, of. Perform peaking opera which didn't come in until the 20th century
0: right yeah um use the word hodgepodge and mess to describe how those uh time time periods have been mixed up in the story but i kind of wonder even if the authors had no intention to create a confusing mixed up sort of timescape to set the story and if if we think about the um you know that the whole death of the author thing that we can interpret it how we like, regardless of intentions or mistakes. The word we could, I might throw in instead of Hodgepodge is cocktail. That's a much nicer word. It's more complimentary, but um, it's fiction can do many amazing things. um, Even when it's not trying to be sort of strange and uh, almost science fictional, mixing up time, they've gone and made this story, which is set in multiple times at once. And that was part of the appeal to me in a way that I don't know to, I don't think it's this simple, um, but you could say that we start off in sometime in the late 1800s in Shandong, and then as Ma sujan is sort of marching or riding her horse or whatever towards Shanghai, she's kind of moving forward through time in a way as well.
1: That's uh, a nice way of looking at it. Yes, I I I didn't think of it that way. I I sort of I, I sort of feel more that it's um, a a story of, that's a nice way of looking at it. So I see it more as a story that is for a modern audience of 1923, um, which shows a, a time in which everyone would have known. of Even at that time, people will have still known about Ma yong and possibly Ma Su jen but not, uh, I imagine not really, because she was made up for, uh, for the book and for the films. Um, but so, it's, it's looking, but it's like a historical film for a modern audience of 19, the 1920s. Right, yes, sensible. This is often what happens
0: um, because I'm just the interviewer and I've there's no burden on me to come up with clever ideas. I often throw out the bizarre nonsense that my guests then sort of politely reply with some common sense. Um, I wanted to ask another not very common sense question about those liminal places, or what I'm calling places in between her home in Shandong and where she's getting to in Shanghai. Just, just at all, is there anything you would say about the in-between places she goes to that is worth remarking on?
1: I think they're places that uh, they're like stage scenes, that she goes from one to another and she uh, performs her acts of bravery and of her, her form of justice, which is to, to take from the rich and give to the poor to slay the uh, aggressors against the poor and uh, and these sorts of things which happen in turn i mean there is a there is a, um, a a a clear trail that happens from shandong to to shanghai but it does take take this form of specific things that happen along the way and it is really uh, the case of um her and her sense of justice
0: yes and you've led me perfectly again to my next question about justice. Um, so it's it's a revenge story, basically. And justice is an interesting thing because it can be served up in many forms. And here it's, I guess, in the form of revenge. I can't really think of any other way that justice is dealed out in this story. Although we might think of revenge as being a pretty straightforward, simple thing. There's lots of curious and interesting things about it, like is revenge ever right um does revenge actually give us closure um what else is it um is re- would it be okay to build revenge into like our criminal justice system all, all these things um so how do you think it plays out in the story uh, in a philosophical or ethical way
1: i think in uh, in the case of ma young she think i meant ma su she thinks she has she has one goal in mind: that is to take revenge, take revenge for her brother. She succeeds, and that is the end of the story. This is the <laughs> this is the the important thing about the story. But what happens along the way is she she meets with different people who have different ideas of what justice is. Obviously, in the first half of the book, there there's a case of you know there's a court case about the murders she commits, although she's not implicated in them because she it, it, it's just a cover up to promote the jobs of the, the wealthy people who, who appear. If you read the book, you'll understand what I mean. Um, but so there's this form of court justice, which, and at that point, it's quite interesting because it takes the form. There are elements in it where you can see that the idea of the Gong'an court, court fiction that uh, had been popular in China for a long, long time since the Song Dynasty, but up until the Qing Dynasty um, and, and into the 20th century. Um, and then there is the justice of those who, ta- who, would, who would have, who had taken revenge already for um, the injustices that they thought Ma Yongjun had, um, had um, acted upon them. So they are the gangsters. They are the gangsters who killed him. So all these people have their own idea of what, the, what justice is
0: throughout the book i'm sort of reminded of i don't know i can't i couldn't really rattle off the names of any films but sort of like a 80s or 90s action film where uh, i guess especially an american one where the politicians are corrupt no one in power can be trusted so we just need muscle to to um kill the baddie absolutely and like the the story even the narrator just tells us right off the bat, basically, yeah, she's she's gonna kill these
1: guys that killed her brother. Don't worry, we'll get there.
0: <laughs> it was weird,
1: and she has the support of uh, people who are high up in places in who are officials also in Shanghai. Her, her great friend, who was a friend of her, oh yeah, her, uh, of her brother, works at the Yamen, works at the um, uh, official as an official, and uh, he's in support of her. Um, And as are um, most of the people from Shandong who live in uh, Shanghai at the time who think they are um, badly treated by the people in Shanghai. So there are lots of different layers to that.
0: Yeah, I kind of wondered what sort of um, deal, what the contract, unspoken contract, was between the the writers and the readers. Because we we already said it's got elements of uh, like Kung Fu fiction. It's got elements of like an urban novel. And one of the things... One of the more interesting things I remember from back when I was an undergrad it was actually a film module, film genre module, and we were introduced to the sort of this theory um, that in, in writing about genres. And the thing that stuck with me is that one can sit, one can argue genres, be it in film or in novels, are like a contract where the the audience or the readers go in with certain expectations. They spend their money on a book. And in return, the author doesn't give them sort of an avant-garde, completely individual, unique thing that is like nothing else. They give them a story that hits certain moments, follows certain patterns, and human beings being what we are for whatever reason seem to enjoy that. And if the contract is broken, that can ruin the experience, or if it's broken in a playful way, it could um, make the novel even more rewarding. So I just kind of wondered, like, when we're told right off the bat, Masujen's Jen's going to Get what she wants and slaughter her enemies and when she does she does it kind of brutally is it just is, is, is it as straightforward as it seems do you think or are the readers supposed to find it ironic or funny or gruesome or or is it just pure satisfaction?
1: I think it's uh, the reader is supposed to know exactly what's going to happen all the way through the book to a certain extent and um, not, certainly not to be surprised by anything but there's a little you know there is it is told in a slightly different way. It is not necessarily, as I said, not the typical martial arts novel. It is, it's much more like a play or a film. Mm. So, and that is something that you don't necessarily get in other, other um, novels of that time. And so the way it's told might be a little different, but um, I think people, um, the reader always knows what's going to come up, that justice will be served, whatever that justice is.
0: Yeah, the the um, influence of, of visual mediums on novels is um, interesting. This is so something I heard like third hand through a podcast who was relating something they heard from someone else saying there's some kind of book or an essay or something by this guy who was writing I think in like the 70s and was commenting on how films had introdu- influenced novels, how novels had sort of um, what's the word F- begun to follow a sort of scene by scene structure and that flash Right, authors of novels were using flashbacks a technique that they had probably absorbed from films rather than from reading other books so it's just interesting to think that this isn't necessarily limited to films introducing novels it could be the theater influencing novels even as far back as the 1920s in china like it doesn't take a great leap of the imagination to to see the sense in that interesting
1: no i think that's right i mean you, what you find in chinese film uh is particularly well throughout because as i say you know the 1927 film of ma, uh, ma was based on uh, the, the the book of 1923 but even up into you know the 1980s 90s and right up until now not so much recently but f- for a long time um in the 80s and 90s uh, films were based on books so many films were based on books. And I think that that happens also in the 1930s. Uh, I
0: think that was all the questions I had about revenge. So my next question is phrased as a hilarious pun. Um I'm so proud of this one. What do new think? So what do um what do we think about the the woman, the the central new and female character? And I, I asked this because I went in. Uh, not quite knowing what to expect because I read the blurb which said this is going to be an urban and kung fu kind of story. But on the cover, we have a very modern, non-threatening sort of woman who seems like she's in Shanghai. And at the opening of the book, we're in what seems to be a more traditional Chinese household where I think all the people there are, are ladies. They don't seem especially dangerous. They don't seem like warriors but then all of those expectations I might've had were cut to pieces by the end of the book. So like who, how,
1: who the hell is Masujan? How do we, how do we describe her? Okay. So the book, the front cover of the book has a picture of Masu. Well, well it doesn't have a picture of Masujen, <laughs> Right. It has a picture of a woman who I imagine is what, how Masujen looks when she's on the boat going over uh, into, she, she dresses as a, a modern woman of the time. Now, although we are supposedly talking about the 19th, uh, the 19th century, I, I chose an image from 19, circa 1915 uh, for that because I think it comes right in the center of what we're talking about. And I, I, I sort of immediately thought when I saw that image that that was how she would appear on the boat coming over. The only time she dresses in women's clothes, in fact. Mm. Um, but that particular image, it has a story behind it as well, because I a long time ago on eBay, I bought a, a set of cigarette cards, which were advertised as Japanese cigarette cards uh, of women. Um, and so I, I bought these. I immediately recognized them as Chinese. And right. when I got them, there's a set of 30 cards showing women, and they are actually from uh, around 1915, that sort of period. Oh, nice. um, and so they, were, they are a very rare set of cards, but they are absolutely fascinating, uh, showing women doing all sorts of things, uh, all, everything you can imagine, riding a train by themselves on a tram, um, tiger hunting, going, <laughs> going fishing, all sorts of things. It's, uh, riding a bicycle, for example. And then, I mean, from that point of view, we were talking about these specific cards. I went, uh, I I did some research, ended up reading Louise Edwards' recently new book, uh, Citizens of Beauty, Citizens of Beauty, Drawing Democratic Dreams in Republican China, in which I was surprised to find images of these um, particular cigarette cards. So that's opened up a whole field for me, uh, which may well turn into another book in, in the future. Uh, because it's it is is a very very interesting thing to look at the uh, images of women particularly from this uh, newspaper or the uh, supplement to a newspaper the Da-Gong- um what's it called um, which is uh, absolutely fascinating so anyway that's slightly off the track of what we're to- talking about but I think uh you know uh, it shows how how enthusiastic i was to find this image, which I think reflects very well how Masu, Masu Jen appears halfway through the story. Right. It's interesting that that pack of
0: cards has all these women alone doing all these different things from mundane things like riding a train, like you said, to, to fighting a tiger. Because Masu Gen also does quite a lot of different things in a rather often, usually on her own. And when she's not on her own, she never seems to really need anyone else at least at an existential level, but it never feels particularly complicated. Like um, no one is particularly shocked that she's a woman or that she's a woman and, and able to do all sorts of things on her own. No one she doesn't get caught up in like a love interest. The fact that she dresses up as a man isn't, I think, might be played for comedy once very briefly, but it's like it's not done for giggles, like it was well, like it could so very easily have been. I don't think she ever loses a fight. (laughs) I don't want to make it sound like a boring book, but it's just interesting that that's not where the focus is. And I'm not exactly a connoisseur of wuxia or xia um, stories of any kind, but one thing it does remind me of them is that whether or not it's historically accurate, um, when a woman becomes one of the Jianghu fighters, it's no big deal. Or if they're in a, in a, in a, in a troop of like seven or 12 warriors and one or two or three of them are women, it's not a really big deal at all. Mm. Um, so I almost have nothing to say about that because I, I don't know what I can say because it's all mm. presented so um, matter-of-factly.
1: Well, in the case of Master Jones, she, uh, she grew up with her brother originally mm. and they both learned martial arts together. So she was supposedly uh, no less talented than her brother as a martial artist. But, you know, I mean, throughout the story itself, She's w- almost always dressed as a man, and most people don't notice she's a woman. Mm, right. It's only when she tells people she's a woman that people realize. Um, so, I mean, al- although that sounds rather unlikely, con- considering she's supposedly a quite a-, a slight young woman, uh, but no one notices, and she is able to defeat these people because she has trained with her brother. But uh, one, of, one, of the thing- one of the things where it departs from the typical sort of Wu um, novel is that at the beginning she hasn't trained with a a monk or a nun or um, a, or or got sort of supernatural powers which it's very specifically doesn't have um, elements of the supernatural and I think that's from the period when it was written that it was frowned upon in the Republican period to to be too um, superstitious and um, that I mean that that's quite clear the way it's written because she that none of the things that happen in the typical wuxia novel such as flying through the air uh that sort of thing uh do not appear she's much more down to earth speaking of um sort of attitudes towards what should be in
0: a what should be in a book and what shouldn't from this era i think that i found i think and this might just say a bit about me as a reader conspicuously absent is anything western because although shanghai at that time especially. It's a colonial city. It's sort of a product of Western interference in China. And again, I mentioned like the old Shanghai of Paul French. For, for, for readers like me and a lot of Paul French's readers, the whole appeal there is that it's incredibly cosmopolitan. And there's a lot of people who, to be frankly, probably look a lot like me or you there, so that you, as well alongside chinese people who you could take an interest in, in the story but the, it's just not really a thing in the story at all i think we, we it's mentioned that one of the gang bosses operating in, in shanghai is i don't think it says where he's from but like he says he's, he's a westerner and his name says that he's bl- blonde or something but like yeah. that's it um and it, it felt again i didn't feel surprised by that because i figured this is popular genre fiction it's not trying to impress every anyone, it's not trying to modernize Chinese culture with Western literary influences like say Lu Xun might be doing, just a bit of entertainment for, for ordinary people. So yeah, I, I don't have a question there, but did that strike you as well?
1: Well, I mean, I, I can point to other books that don't have... And, and a notable thing about, for example, Shanghai Chunqiu, which is by uh, Bao Tianxiao. It, the, that is very notable for having no foreigners in as well. And I think, you know, this, so this doesn't, um, it, it's not unusual. And the the person you refer to in, in the book, who is only referred to, doesn't appear in the book, is called Yellowbeard. Right. And he was a policeman in the uh, Shanghai police force. And he was a real person. Again, he mm. was the person who, um, when when Ma, Ma Yongjun first came to Shanghai, they had a, a feat of strength, which actually, um quite strangely, was just them holding hands to see who could uh, hurt each other most, and they went around walking around the town, hand in hand, and of course, Ma Yongjun wins in the end. Have you ever seen the poster uh, from Mao's China of
0: uh, Sino-Soviet friendship?
1: I've seen several of those.
0: There's a famous, well, I say famous, it does the rounds on the internet. Um, it's It's a very buff Asian, presumably Chinese man, and a very buff, uh, blonde Russian guy, like standing side by side, looks like they might be more than
1: friends. Uh, yeah, just what that I, reminds I, me of. I'm pretty sure. I know. I know the sort of thing you mean, and um, possibly even the uh, poster you mean. I, you know, I, I, I doubt that's intentional. Um, <laughs> you know, it just appeals na- nowadays. Yes. It's kind of funny. That does sound like an intense way to
0: fight though. That my hands aren't aren't strong. I think I'd lose. Yes, just holding hands. <laughs> yeah. Uh interesting. That was I was not where I expected that question to go. So excellent. Um uh, we, we mentioned Wu and uh the wandering Shah warriors a few times. So I'll I'll take us to the next section, which is um kind of about that. In in fact, hang on. Yes, it is kind of about that. Yeah. So the first first um the first question would have been the people behind the words what wandering literary knights wrote the story but we, we basically already hit on that point but my next question was who sort of handled these characters subsequently so um i i sort of flippantly threw out the term uh, extended universe earlier in our conversation and i'll throw out another awful 21st century word uh IP who's handled this this IP um, or is it completely open source IP um, that any all sorts of creators were able to have fun with and uh, rejig without being sued by the Disney or fox corporations over the decades
1: yeah well I mean as I mentioned the first film is from 1927 and that's the film that uh, is based on the book um, and then after that there's there's Quite a period before it becomes a, another film, but we must, uh, you know, the importance of the drama is is really worth noting. And then in the nineteen forties, there was um, a a version of uh, storytelling version, and you can actually even see that on the on China, uh, on the internet, uh, and it's all spoken word. So unfortunately, uh, because it's mostly in um, Shanghai dialect, uh, Shanghai oh, nice. the, the language local language of Shanghai. Mm. I can only stand, understand a few words. So, But anyway, getting back to what we're talking about, which is actually the films, um, because l- much later in the 1970s, uh, there were several films made. One was um, ta- a Taiwanese film from 1972, A Brave Girl Boxer in Shanghai. That's the official English name. Uh, uh, followed by 1988, there's Ma Sujun Takes Revenge, made by the Shanghai Film Studio. And very recently... Uh, there's been uh, one which was made actually just in uh, 2020, which is Ma Yongjun, Duel in Jabe, uh, which I haven't seen. That's the one I haven't seen, but um, uh, hopefully one day I will. The reason I haven't seen it actually, because I didn't want it to influence everything that I've been writing about these two people, Ma Yongjun and Ma mm. Um And so, I mean, uh, and then on top of that are the, uh, the drama series on the TV drama series, which are uh, pretty terrible. I have to say, but you know that's just the way it is. Some drama series are great, some are terrible, and uh, one in particular was, you know, I watched it all the way through, dutifully, but um, it wasn't uh, really. I wouldn't recommend it. That's
0: funny. You read my mind again because my next question was going to be, do you? How do you rate of of all these things that are out there which you watched? Like, is there any real crackers?
1: None. <laughs> the the book there's no doubt that the book is the best thing about you know the best story about I, I mean I must say that 1927 film of course I haven't seen because it mm. doesn't exist anymore it's lost oh, that's a great pity right um, but from, I mean I've enjoyed the film particularly the uh, a brave girl boxing Shanghai in 1972 I enjoyed that um, but I wouldn't necessarily watch it again put it that way
0: so Taiwan wins outrageous. All mainland listeners are shaking their fists in fury right now not really i'm sure i'm sure they're not upset uh my next question uh, i've titled this one genre stacking so we we've rattled we rattled we've, we've name dropped a few genres but i wonder like if we were being if we were casting the net as wide as we can how many genres would you say appear in the book
1: uh i i would say that there are Possibly four. There's the martial arts novel, although it's not necessarily um, it's not. I describe it in that way because I think people in this country, in England, would understand it, uh, understand what it's like if you call it a martial arts novel. Yeah, Uh, because if you refer to it then as a Mandarin Ducks and Butterflies novel, which is basically what it is. I mean, the problem with that term, you know, it's been used. It was used ever since, you know, the 1920s, 1930s. Um, in a disparaging way to refer to love stories, and but you know this of course isn't a love story as you pointed out. There is not one hint of any sort of love interest at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is a, a a it is typical of the popular fiction of it. And then there's the urban writing which I've mentioned before. Again um, and again, I, I said Bao Xiao, because he he's uh, and and you know i can't recommend enough if if people can read chinese reading uh, shanghai trincio it is a really great not a very long but great novel and then there is this as i said before hint of gong court case fiction but i think that's probably where it where it stops but i think people were, uh, of the time will have been aware of how close this was to uh, the theater and how close it was to uh, later on to film and of course, the fil- the uh, book was republished in 1929, I think as a result of the 1927 film. It's funny what you said there about the Mandarin, what was it? Mandarin ducks and butterflies.
0: Ducks and butterflies. Yes, about how that began as an insult. Um, I, can't, I don't have a list. I was trying to get a list in front of me via Google, but I wasn't able to get it up quickly. But I, I believe quite a lot of genres uh, in different media, the names of the genres begin as insults. And then just sort of end up get end up getting adopted. I had one in my head. It's 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 since departed, unfortunately. But yeah, it's it's interesting how these things can can stick.
1: But we mustn't uh, mustn't underestimate the popularity of this. I mean, I think mm. it was more popular. The popular literature of the so-called mandra ducks and butterflies uh, was much more popular than the um at the in the 1920s and and 30s than was um, the the new literature, which is basically, you know, what uh had been writing in the 1920s, although, of course, that was very popular in, in itself.
0: Yeah, something that I find quite amusing about trashy genres is that they get received so much hate from, I guess, culturally elite people, uh, like the fine listeners of this podcast, of course, but they, you know, they persist anyway. People who love them don't care. Um, but, no, Yeah.
1: Yeah, um... I, I will defend it. Um, I <laughs> love reading it. You know, one of my favorite novels is uh, Ti Xiao Inyuan, which is uh, a, another book which is very much in the verging on the martial arts genre bit, but book by Zhang Hunshui. Uh, mm-hmm. Fate in Tears and Laughter, it's called in English. Uh, and that is a book I would recommend to anyone if, again, I mean, I don't think it's been translated to, in, into English which is a great pity and i i had considered doing that myself but there's so many parts in it that are not that people english readers wouldn't really understand uh, and maybe get a bit bored by uh, that um, i haven't done it because uh, partly also because it's very long if you translate the whole thing
0: Mm. i found um well i say i found this is something i as soon as I took an interest in translated Chinese fiction, something I began to, began to think of right off the bat is, well, what, what gets translated here? Because, uh, well, an, a bit of a neurosis I had, or developed living in China, is realizing how little of an idea everyone I knew back home had about anything about the PRC, um, either in its present or, or its history. So I would, I would often be trying to explain it, you know, the things that float to the top of your your newsfeed or chit-chat about China, even if they're accurate, they're just one sliver of, of, of life there and often have no bearing on other people's lives. So when I started reading uh, translated stuff from Chinese, first for fun, then for this podcast, and then I ended up making that more or less the topic of my publishing master's dissertation, a big fixation I had, which I saw some other academic people had had, is why does a lot of the stuff ordinary Chinese people read never make it to English in translation? And of the things that do, what are they? Um, and, and where I'd go with this is, at first looking into things, I thought, well, everyone, or well, not everyone, but loads of people back there love these crazy, silly wuxia stories, and loads of people read their fiction online, but why do you never hear about that in English? But over the course of doing this podcast, I've awakened to the fact actually there are so many readers of Chinese wuxia all around the world reading it online, but they're just in their own little underground world, and it's very rarely that something something bubbles up to print or to the mainstream. But like just if you just look on Twitter, there are I don't think they outnumber the K-pop fans, but it's just a similar massive underground world.
1: I think it is. I, yeah. It definitely is, and it now crosses over with uh, fantasy fiction and uh, internet fiction of various types. So you know, th- there's a um, there's a crossover there. But fans of wuxia, particularly, um, you get a lot of talk now about Jin Yong. I mean, you've always had a lot of talk about Jin Yong because he is sort of the grandmaster of the uh, wuxia. And the fact that it's now been translated, a lot of it has been translated. I don't think the whole, um, all his works have been translated to English yet, but many of them have uh, quite recently. So I would, I would think that's probably a place to, uh, to go after, if you find yourself um, particularly interested in
0: uh, martial arts novels. I think we're ready to march on to my next set of questions here. The first is, I've titled it The World Off the Path. So I mentioned that masugen kind of goes on a conventional hero's journey, but kind of wanders into a strange book, not in one genre, not even written by one person. So, for you, the translator, was this a challenging, unconventional, bizarre task, or or was this uh, par for the course for you?
1: Okay. Well, it was uh, first of all, it was a great pleasure to do it, and I enjoyed reading it in the first place, and that's mm. why I, I I decided to do it, but. It is written in a, in, a, in a specific way, you know, in a, in a antiquated language. It's not literary Chinese or it has elements of literary Chinese, but it's a sort of it, the typical uh, antiquated or uh, yeah antiquated language that it was used in the 1920s and 30s as part of this uh, Mandarin Ducks and Butterflies um, literature uh, fiction thing. Right. Uh, before I did this, you know, I mean, I... I had done a lot of translation of poems and inscriptions. I mean, that's a lot of what my job was at the Ashmolean. And before that, I'd done a lot of um, inscriptions for antique shops, et cetera, et cetera, and collectors. Uh, So that was uh, uh, my main experience of translation was poetry and classical Chinese. Uh, But then my second book that I wrote, uh, wrote, which came out in 2020, Intoxication Shanghai, Um, I did the unusual, I took the unusual step of translating four short stories for inclusion in the book. So that was my first experience of uh, writing more uh, things at more length. And that was, uh, those were uh, stories by so-called new sensationists. Oh, right. Uh, So there are four, four short stories scattered in this book. Which um, the book is so expensive that very few people have read it. It seems, but uh, uh, which is a great pity for me, not not necessary for for anybody else. But um, I, you know, it would be nice to hear what people think about my translations in those as well. But so I came to this with those tools um, already. So I translate, done a lot of translation, uh, ov- obviously o- over the years, and I came to this book, and it was a night. I mean, you ask if it's a challenge. Translating a, a a lengthy piece of work, although this is quite a short novel, um, is always a challenge. It's always going to be a challenge, um, and it was a uh, but it was above all great fun.
0: Right. Now, again, you've you've set me up so nicely for my next question. It's it's, it's like someone showed you my questions in advance or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, you've you've thrown me one to knock out the park here. So you mentioned the the pricing, uh, and this has actually been on my mind lately for two reasons. One is in my last episode, I added a book that I saw on Instagram. A sort of a, I wouldn't say a friend, but someone who I've uh, seen a few times through the London Chinese sci fi group got Mia Chen Ma, uh, got a chapter in this uh, one of these academic books. It's a collection of uh, different uh, chapters, all contributed by different um, academics. And it was on eco criticism in Chinese lit. And I was like, wow, fantastic. This, this is coming out soon. I'll, I'll have to put it in my news segment so I can encourage listeners to buy it. I'll just look up the, the publisher's page so I can put the link in there. Oh, it's £120. Okay. Or for people short on cash, they can fork out £60 for the ebook. That's one reason this has been on my mind. The other is my girlfriend uh, is three times smarter than me and she's got a book coming out through... Boydell, and Brewer. So she finished a PhD on Wolves in Old English Lit, and that's that's been turned in, well, she turned it into a book. Uh, and it's, you know, it's a bargain by comparison. The hardback is £60, paperback's £20, and the ebook is for some reason the same price as the paperback. I don't understand that, but that's how they're doing it. And the reason these numbers are what they are is this is kind of how book pricing goes in academic publishing.
1: Well, those numbers are good I mean that sounds quite yeah. cheap to me, I have to say, yeah,
0: twenty pounds is in it's in the it's almost affordable
1: <laughs> yeah i mean i I don't think I should say what prices my books are because I don't think the publishers would like it, but you know my first book was more than you've said hundred it's more mm. than a hundred uh, my second book was more than two hundred um and uh, but I must say the first book is is available in paperback much much cheaper so mm. i uh, it'd be great if someone could if uh, people were interested, if they read that in, in paperback, um, the this current book is expensive.
0: Yeah.
1: I'm not going to say how much it is. If you want to say how much it is, that's fine.
0: Uh, I It's okay. But yeah, I, I guess I would say best way to get academic stuff, if, if you are not a library, if you're an individual human being, it's through library access. That's basically the best way to do it. Or if it's years after the things come out, there might be a secondhand copy floating around. But um, I didn't want to just make sort of mean comments about money, uh, I wanted to ask about just like readership in general, because when I try and think about readers who might be listening to this show, if I was to put them in a spectrum of like uh, light to heavy, let's say, Mm. I might put the academics at the heavy, you know, the heavyweight end, and then the wuxia web novel addicts reading stuff on their phones right at the other. In an ideal world, would you hope that this translation of yours reaches right across the spectrum would you want to put them on a room
1: well i absolutely i want to i i don't well above all i should say this is not an academic book right the yes. academic side of it is the essay that i have written and i've actually put that at the end rather than the beginning so that people will will read the story and enjoy it before they read about about the story so it's not an academic book and that's a pity that's it got an academic um, face to it you know to the public But uh, so I would it's it really is suitable for young and old Mm. um, and people and as well as academics, because, of course, it's an important part of um, modern Chinese lit, but um, it can be read by anybody. I think that's what that was the aim was, uh, was that it again, as I said, you know, the original was written in a sort of um, antiquated style. And so I've translated it in, in an antiquated style what i'm really against is hearing, uh reading books which were written clearly in maybe even literary chinese that are translated into straightforward and modern english uh, right. it's very difficult to uh, make, make the balance and make it uh, in an antiquated english but um, i i i hope i've succeeded
0: i i think you did i think especially the voice of the narrator um it was in a particular style and it felt like yeah this it felt like a book, I w- it felt like an, an English language book from, you know, maybe the early 20th century written for a bit of fun and whimsy that I might have picked up off the shelf. Um, yeah. But with more Chinese stuff in there. It, yeah, so I think you succeeded there.
1: Okay, so my my inspiration for doing it, I mean, I'm not saying it Im- imitates in any way, but Middlemarch was my uh, sort of, so from that, that sort of period. So I haven't copied, but it, it sort of inspired me. To, to write in that way. Uh, right. As I say, I wouldn't compare myself to George Eliot, but...
0: I'm going to pull up a, a quote here. He's one of my favourite Twitter users, as well, as well as one of my favourite translators, uh, Jeremy Tiang. He said something rather funny about this, about the question of tone. Yeah, so he, his tweet was, I don't care about the meanings of words. I'm here to translate vibes and obviously he's being a bit flippant there but the point of like you need to capture the tone of the thing um Mm. if you just if you're just going by definitions of words you're not going to make something that's very readable and the reason i like his translations aside from his excellent uh vocabulary and word choices and taste in the books he chooses to work on just yeah he he produces things that are readable and that's probably because it's a a vibes first philosophy Mm. or at least a kind of faithfulness or appropriateness of tone like you've gone right. for there
1: well another thing I, I've done is to uh because it, it's very difficult particularly with the uh dialogue it's just a question in the Chinese it just says he said this she said this he said this she said this that's sort of, mm. i I've had to add quite a lot to to make it set, make sense and also uh, taking my uh, lead from David Hawkes and his translation of "Story of the Stone," uh, Hong Mon, um I have uh, included quite a bit of explanation as well as I've gone along because otherwise it just wouldn't make sense to an English uh, reading audience.
0: Right. Yeah. Stop. Stop me if, if you if this is an awkward one, but um, you did you did in your in in the I think in the intro or again, I can't remember what's in the intro, what's in the essay, but you mentioned that there are actually some sort of technical errors in the book, Um, maybe because it was a bit of a rushed out, cheap job. There's a few things that just don't make sense. And you made the choice as the translator to sort of patch them, put some patches on them. Do you want to talk about that?
1: Mm, Yeah. So there are various parts in in the book where at the most basic, the pages are out of order. So it took me a long time to uh, re oh, yeah. the pages so, yeah. to, so that it made sense. But not only the pages. Strangely, some of the, some of the actual um, text is, seems to be in the wrong place. So I've moved a couple mm. of things around from that point of view. But particularly what I had to change was uh, things that were inconsistent. For example, at the end it says there were two murders, blah, blah, blah. In fact, there'd only been one murder, um, and so I had to I had to make a murder happen, for example. But I mean, th- these are these are minor things. Uh, I well, I think they are. Um, someone else might think differently. But um, when I've made a change, I've included it in in the introduction, where there is a whole list of the things that I've I've done. Uh, that's another part which makes it an academic book rather than just a, a book for fun. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I remember reading the, the list of uh, sort of those sort of fixes that you made. And my first thought was, well, that's a bit cheeky. But then I thought, no, the cheeky thing would be to do this and then never say you did it and then get, you know, get caught 10 years later or something. So
1: absolutely right. I mean, the thing I wanted to do was make a book that was readable. And in order to do that, if there was something that would clearly stand out to the reader as uh, not making sense, I had to make it make sense
0: yeah yeah the more academic thing to do would be leave it there and then footnote it saying by the way this is wrong and i noticed look at me
1: yeah but (laughs) that spoils the fun for the your average reader
0: sure i think yeah yeah um righty-ho so my next set of questions we've we've got to the miscellaneous section so we're making good progress here so my first miscellaneous question was the Chinese word of the day, just any word
1: that sort of captures the spirit of the story. What what would you select? I'm gonna have to say again because I just I've thrown a blank on this. I can't think of a, a word.
0: So. Okay. Um well I'm I'm torn in two here because I've my vocab is it's all right. It's not great. So using my simple vocab. I might just go for it. new, the word for woman, which I've never used before, and is on one hand really relevant, because that's part of the reason this one got translated, is the interesting uh, female main character. But then on the other hand, the fact she's a woman feels unimportant at times as well. So that would be my first choice. And my second choice would be going on to Google Translate and looking up the Chinese word for vengeance, which I
1: don't know. Right. Bao Baochou, in Baochou in this case.
0: right. Yeah, well, that is,
1: that is a very suitable word for for this, but um, uh, I you know I think every reader would come up with their own uh, decision on what what is most uh, important or stands out most to them.
0: Oh, this is interesting. So I pop, oh, I pop revenge. Hang on, vengeance. Yeah, I pop vengeance into Google Translate, and it's given me fucho, not yeah fucho. No, is that's a, also the one, yeah. Is there a subtle
1: difference between those two? I wouldn't like to say. But, <laughs> right. uh, you know, I mean, for example, uh the word Baucho comes in the title of this book, but the word Fucho comes in the title of the uh, the film from 1970, or 1988, I think it is. Oh, interesting. So, I mean, they, they mean pretty much the same thing.
0: Okay, got it. Hopefully that will stay in my memory and I will have learned it. We'll see. Now, my next bonus question uh not bonus, what am i talking about my mm-hmm. next miscellaneous question uh, it's the music question if, if you could pair uh the story t- with a piece of music or if you could set it to a piece of music in your own film or stage adaptation does anything
1: spring to mind well here we hit on an interesting one because you know most of my life was spent as a professional musician oh, so right. music is important to me right uh for this for this story i mean i i would have to go for a uh, something to do with peaking opera there okay. are two points in the in the book where music is mentioned one is in the funeral that i've already mentioned the funeral of the dignitary at the beginning uh where monks are playing music uh and monks and voices well, monks and etc are playing music but the other Place that uh, music makes uh, the biggest impact is when Master Jun is taken by her host, uh, Madame Chai, to a Peking opera. Hmm. And she sees a, uh, a performance of Mu Lian, rescues his mother from hell. And oh, yeah. she's, te- she's terrified because of the scenery that uh, depicts all sorts of things happening in hell. But that is the piece. I would, you know, I would think of uh, a, a piece of Peking opera, Shanghai-style Peking opera, uh, Hai Pai, as, it's, as it was known.
0: Hai Pai, um, right. okay.
1: Yeah. And, uh, and, and you know, going, when I arrive in Shanghai, I, which is the place I go to visit most when I go to China, or any city that I visit, I will go to the opera house first of all, and I will buy tickets for every evening to go and watch uh, a uh, either uh, Jingju, uh, Peking opera, or um, any any other performances that are happening of that type of thing. So that's that's one thing that I would uh, pair with this book. But another okay. is um, is Sujo Pingtan, so the Uh, storytelling from Sujo. Right. that is uh, Sung to the accompaniment of uh, Pipa and Sanxian, uh, which is related to the sort of storytelling that I mentioned before, which was just spoken word. But uh, I'm not, I have never heard a version of this story in Sujo Pingtan, but I am looking out for one. I should mention, yeah, because uh, Chief Anyo, who is uh, the book is attributed to, was a, um, a writer of Suzhou um pieces. Mm. So, which makes it, uh, again, very relevant. Right. That's, that's funny that you named Hai uh,
0: Pai because that was one of the words of the day in a past episode, funnily enough. Right. We did the book of it's shanghai a, and that was the choice it's a
1: very tip it's a very difficult word that because it's been it basically used used nowadays just to refer to shanghai style mm. whereas uh you know or the way i refer to it is as Pai and uh, as peking opera shanghai style is the way it was originally referred to so you had jing pai and Hai Pai, um Peking opera
0: mm. i follow um Uh, yeah on Instagram I think on this podcast's account uh, I follow a few different hashtags so that I can see something whenever it comes up so like if you follow hashtag Chinese literature it's a quiet enough uh, hashtag that I see just about everything that comes up I don't tend to miss anything and there's a few I follow that get almost no posts and one of them is high pie and it seems like um, I don't know if it's from Japanese people using the same characters or if it has another meaning in Chinese but sometimes people just take pictures from like their trip to the beach and post it mm. under hpai <laughs> so it's literally the wow. sea i
1: don't yeah. know yeah i mean it's it, it's come to refer to shanghai style anything shanghai style mm. so it's changed its meaning over of course in the 1930s it was uh, a big question of uh, it was uh, the difference between jingpai and Pai. Mm-hmm. literature was the a uh, big question at the time but uh, originally it was uh, to do with peaking up
0: okay got it so it's funnily enough i've also made two musical choices um one is much it's much 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 lower low brow but it is relevant i guess it's um because it's, it's gangster rap and we're we're dealing with gangsters so it's uh it's by a group called d12 this is this is very out of fashion now i think this was the group eminem was in so he was in a i think they were called d12 because it was the dirty dozen and it was him and 11 uh not white rappers uh 11 other guys from detroit all african americans this song i've picked is called shit can happen and it's basically the idea is if you mess with us well something might happen to you and that's kind of what's driving the action in, uh,
1: in this book That's <laughs> we slanging or swagger while I'm out on the hood rats to say I act like I'm too famous to say hi And tell us what my name is, but really I'm still nameless. You niggas don't get it yet, do you? a night platinum a flop, I suppose it's surprised. Picture me sitting in a jail cell, rotten.
0: I'm barricaded in a motel with twelve shotguns. When it's come knocking, each tails got one cock, ready to dump slugs, send me one man army me? Guns can't harm me, young and army It's not it. A... The book is not nearly as scary as the threats made in the song but i figured <laughs> you know that's that's one side of the story and then the other one again i don't know if if the content or the uh story behind this piece of music has anything to do with martial arts or kung fu but uh, it has that vibe it's um it's not by a chinese group it's by a, a string quartet group called the Kronos quartet mm. and they're um I don't really, really know what their story is, but they seem to be very into covering music from all over the world. It seems like they might be particularly uh they might have a particular track record for covering stuff from all over different parts of Asia, be it South Asia, Middle East, or East Asia. But they've got this album called A Thousand Thoughts, which um when I when I came across the I downloaded it, uh whilst living in China because I thought what a beautiful title this must be very peaceful thoughtful music but actually it's very chaotic album because it's in they're doing these string pieces and loads of different styles from around the world and one of the most chaotic ones is very decidedly Chinese style it's called the round sun and the crescent moon in the sky and it's I think it's the only track that's got vocals on it because right at the start it's a woman's voice actually she does something to call a group to action I know she's speaking Mandarin. Uh, I'm not sure what the first sentence she says is. I'm pretty sure the second sentence is like, "woman So like, come on, guys, let's start. A little bit like someone in D12 might say, like, let's do this. Like in a rock yes. or a rap song might do. going to use it for one of my uh, musical pairings at some
1: point and
0: I figured it was a pretty good fit for this uh for this story here
1: that I've never heard the piece but I do know the Kronos Quartet because I, uh, pre- I think I'm pretty right I think I'm writing saying they began in the 1980s and did quite a lot of um classical contemporary music as in avant-garde music mm-hmm. and i got this idea and i may be wrong i would like to check if i'd know you know i i'd love to check but i think they play the university challenge music
0: oh well google is your friend let me see uh, i've got two screens i'm in a strong advantage here. yes university challenge it's funny a thing i like about them is Yeah, they they're clearly from sort of a highbrow musical world, but they're also on the soundtrack for some quite popular films Uh, like, um, oh, God, um, they're Darren. They've collaborated with Darren Aronofsky. So admittedly, a bit of a highbrow um, guy, a filmmaker, Um, uh, Requiem for a Dream. I'm pretty sure they're in that they did most of the score for that, which is, you know, that's a film a lot of people know, don't have to be in the elite to enjoy Requiem for a Dream. I'm not sure it's brought up a question about them. They were the answer to a question in an episode of University Challenge way back. I'm not sure. It might be someone else. I'm not seeing anything here.
1: Oh, how strange. It might be something else. Let me see. I'll try it a different way. Balanescu Quartet. Right. They're similar.
0: Okay. They're similar. Well, that, that's that one resolved. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take some Cut editing. it out if you want. I'll, I'll edit that one down so that we solved it in about 10 seconds. Yeah. Uh, speaking of editing, so my next question, this is going to be snipped out uh, and put on the show's Patreon for uh, the show's patrons. And the question is this: uh, Do you have any strong feelings about any times or places in Shanghai or Shandong? Because, like I already mentioned, the sort of Paul French school of mm. China writing, uh, it's pretty easy to obsess over old dirty Shanghai. But like, what about yourself? Are you invested? in time and space right cool yeah um I, I won't try and stretch that one out any further it's perfectly lo- lovely how it was so our onto our last questions now the um the further reading questions so i think you've given some pointers already we had we had jin yong but just generally if our listeners want more like this book where where would you send them
1: yeah, I had thought of Jin Yong in that uh, regard. but And and, uh, and the other book that I would I would say is Ti Xiao in, Ye, in which, again, I mean, I have to stress that it hasn't been translated to my knowledge into English, but it is one of the great books. And you can watch the film. There are always films of these things. So there's a film, I think there are two films about uh, Ti Xiao In Ye. One of them stars Butterfly Wu, and that's no doubt available on um, you know, any, any number of places on the internet.
0: All right. So my last question then, uh, what are you reading just now?
1: What am I reading now? Uh, well, of course, I read all sorts of different things for uh, my teaching. Uh, that's just what I have to do. Um, and of course, that's enjoyable in itself. But for my relaxation or for my personal research, um, at the moment, I'm reading a book by Chen Zishan which is uh, a book in Chinese, but it's about Aubrey Beardsley in China. And the reason I'm reading that is because um, I'm going to be presenting a, a paper at a conference about Aubrey Beardsley. And my thing is Aubrey Beardsley in China and uh, various aspects that aren't covered by... The, the book by Chen Shan is not so much on Aubrey Beardsley in China, but it's a collection of um, all the um, writings from in the past, that refer to Aubrey Beardsley in Chinese. So, And then the other book I'm reading, which is in English, um, a book that uh, you've mentioned, Twitter, and this is a book I uh, found on Twitter. I I liked the idea of it, and I think it was the author themselves who was commenting on it. Uh, This is called uh, Spirits Abroad by Zen Chou. So what I particularly like about that is the language in it because it's, it's using, uh, what well, I, I don't know how one would refer to it, but possibly Malaysian English. Mm. And I particularly like that. Malayal English. It yeah. doesn't roll off the tongue,
0: does it? Well. I, I usually squeeze in what I'm reading. It's, it's Ramsey Campbell, who I mentioned before. I'm reading his uh, The Searching Dead, and I can actually relate it to things we've hit on in the conversation, because... It's definitely genre fiction. It's uh, it's in the horror genre. Sort of he he's uh, I think he got his start um being pegged by one of the heirs of Lovecraft, um, looking for another heir to sort of someone else who could write in that style. He sort of evolved and did other stuff later in his career. But now as an older man, he's come back to continuing, I think, an idea from one of those early stories. So the reason I mention that is it's genre fiction. I kind of know what to expect, and it's fun to read. So mm. it's it's a breath of fresh air. I'm not reading it out of any real sense of obligation, just curiosity and pleasure. So that's not to be underrated. We should I, thinking yourself into the trap of reading books that aren't fun is one of the worst things I think you can do to yourself as a reader. So that's worth mentioning, I guess. And the other thing is you mentioned that. Uh, the Adventures of Masujin. it's like appropriate for all sorts of ages. If you're old enough to, or your reading ability is uh, high enough to sort of manage the writing style, you know, it's not difficult, but like, I wouldn't give it to, a, say, a seven-year-old. Um, if, you, if you're fine with that, then anyone can enjoy the book. And if you're an adult who doesn't like, uh, I was about to say, if you don't like adult content, you're fine. That's not strictly true because it does get a bit violent. But if, if, um, if violence isn't an issue, then anyone can read the thing, anyone can enjoy it. And similarly, The Searching Dead, although it does get a bit scary, it's not massively scary. And it's kind of like a English boy in school sort of story. It seems to be a bit of a, like, using his own childhood. It's set in the 50s post-war Liverpool, and a kid is at school and finds out one of his teachers is up to no good so it's playing on that genre as well and it would work just as well as young adult fiction as an adult horror novel which is how i'm reading it so yeah uh, i don't know if if anyone's listening and interested in that it's it's great i've powered through it so i'd recommend it but yeah um all that aside we've we pretty much reached the end so is there anything at all we've not hit on
1: that you'd like to hit on before we say our goodbyes i don't think so i mean there's so much to talk about which we, mm. we haven't talked uh, spoken about uh the, the story's life in the in the theater or in the film very much but if people want to read about uh to know about that they can read it in my uh, essay in my book
0: yeah it is i'm i'm not just being nice here um I, I i will say it was one of the i don't know if i if i'd say top 10 because i've not been counting but as explanations of the story or essays included in books that I've read ever or for the podcast I thought it was very readable it was a great combo of like in-depth and um, academic-ish but also engaging readable I remember it being a bit amusing at times I I think it had a bit of the, a bit of the same wryness that's sort of in the narrator's voice at times so yeah just I wouldn't say read the book just for that essay because that would be doing the story a disservice. But they're a very good joint package, so I think yeah, that, that that's worth mentioning.
1: But I think one thing about it is always read the story first. Mm. I think uh, otherwise it will it will be ruined by reading the uh, the essay.
0: Yeah, and we've avoided well we've kind of avoided spoiling the story we've we've done no worse than the authors who decided to tell us how it would end in like the, <laughs> the first 10 pages so if they could do it i think we can do we can talk about what we've talked about but yeah um i guess i'll just say thanks very much for coming on the show paul uh i think you're the first oxford or cambridge uh academic to come on the show so that's a first Yeah. all right
1: well thank thank you for inviting me and uh I hope we can do it again maybe, and I hope many more from Cambridge and Oxford will join you.
0: Okay, we've reached the end of the episode, it's the outro. So not a great deal to say here, just thanks again to Paul for coming on the show. Of a show that's covered many sort of oddball publications, I think this is one of them but it was a very interesting one to get to grips with, and to be sort of led, led through by a guy who understands it so intimately. I know I always say this, but what a pleasure it was talking to my guests for this episode. I literally always say it, it's pretty much literally always true. Um, I guess I should end on, on the traditional plug, which is, um, well, it is becoming a tradition now, it's the Patreon. That is uh, what keeps the show going, in that it pays the hosting fees, uh, plus a little bit of surplus, which I usually use to buy milk and bread. For myself so that I can stay alive. Uh, the Patreon has something like, I've actually not been counting, but it's um it's got dozens and dozens and dozens of episodes, as about as many as the main feed, although I should say uh, in all honesty they're not as long, they tend to average about half an hour, sometimes under, sometimes over. I also put the bonus question uh, snippets up there. Again, full disclosure—that's uh, about five minutes that I snipped out of this interview to pop onto, pop up onto Patreon. Uh, another full disclosure: I queue these things to come out like once every two—it's like once every one, two, or three weeks. A bit like the show, actually. It's every two weeks right now. So um, that little bonus snippet won't become going up online until I think like maybe May. I I could sync them up more cunningly, but. I have not the time. <laughs> but uh, yeah, every bonus question that's snipped out does go up there eventually. And I also talk about a- any sort of Chinese or China-adjacent book I read in my free time. I put up thoughts on there. And if, if I'm reading a book for the show, I'll put up additional th- like solo thoughts about that book on there in, in audio form. So, like, most recently, uh, I just, actually just today, I finished uh, Jottings Under Lamplight by Lu Xun. So when I was halfway through that book, I sort of splurged out my thoughts for half an hour in uh, spoken word form and popped it up on the Patreon. I might do a second one talking more about the book, post read thoughts, although I don't I may not do that, I may have got out all my sort of key thoughts first time around, but yeah. As, you, as it sounds from from the way I'm describing it, the Patreon is quite freestyle, it's pretty much all solo, so if you want to hear me talking uh, just into the mic without a guest, that's, oh man, you've got hours of that stuff up there. So yeah, enough about the Patreon and more about the best thing you can do for the show, if you've been listening for a while, you know where I'm going with this, it's just spread the word. Tell people, uh, tell people online, tell people offline, I guess I've always idealized the idea of telling people offline about the show, but perhaps that's not really how people po- discover a podcast. Maybe online recommendations are more meaningful. That's something I'll have to, an unfortunate reality that I'll have to grapple with, I suppose. But whilst I'm grappling with that, you tell your, um, your kung fu master if you have one. Tell the ghost of your deceased brother if you don't have a kung fu master. If you don't have a deceased brother, you can tell your living brother. If you don't have a brother at all, you can tell your sister. If you have no siblings, uh, then whisper it in the ear of your enemy before you disembowel him and uh, paint the floor with his guts. By what you know, whatever means you were going to use to exact your revenge, um, it doesn't matter. Just just tell that guy, and maybe in his last moments, he'll sort of contemplate subscribing to this podcast. And I would. That wouldn't be reflected in the subscription numbers of my show, but I would still think of it as some kind of a boost, and I'll take any boost I can get. So on that note, Zaijian.